Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Uncensored History Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm your host, Jonathan Mori, and before diving into our subject matter, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a senior in college, and I've always had an interest in media and creating it, but I never really had the means to do it, or the opportunity to do it, or a fully fleshed out idea until now. On top of my interest in media, I have always been extremely passionate about history and would have absolutely majored in it if there were better job prospects. So the ability to combine those two passions is truly wonderful, and I hope that those of you listening enjoyed as much as I enjoyed making it. Now I'm sure you're wondering what exactly this podcast is about. First and foremost, I promise you that this is not a conspiracy podcast. I will never be talking about aliens, Big Brother, or anything like that. However, as we all know, History is written by the victors, which means they can emphasize or downplay whatever it is they want people to know. This doesn't mean that there's a conspiracy to falsify history, but it does mean that a substantial amount of people only know one version of history. Historians, which I am not one, allow me to emphasize that, actually do two things. First, they research history, and second, they interpret history. In some cases, this is very simple. For example, because Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the United States declared war on Japan. It's pretty cut and dry. However, that, that's not always the case. Sometimes historians do not know whether it was causation or correlation, but they still seek to interpret their sources. This leads to confirmation bias in the best case scenario, in which someone uses sources that could lead to multiple conclusions to come to the conclusion that best suits their own beliefs. However, in other cases, it causes people to overlook certain positives or negatives and focus on the opposite in order to push their point. For instance, someone studying the United States' role in World War II may, due to their pro-American bias, focus on liberating Europe from Nazi Germany and overlook the internment of American citizens of Japanese descent throughout the war. While hopefully we can all agree that the liberation of Europe was in fact an excellent thing, we cannot allow this to explain or excuse the mistreatment of our own citizens. This is why it is so important for us to view history through a neutral lens. The entire reason we study history is so that we can learn from the past and correct the mistakes our ancestors made. And how are we to do that if we do not allow ourselves to find mistakes that make our biases look bad? So that brings us back to the question of what this podcast is about. In this podcast, I will try my very best to give a neutral perspective on major events throughout history and hopefully help you begin to see the bias present in what you learned about history. I will do this by comparing raw data, facts, and statistics about the event from primary sources to the media coverage of these events at the time they happened and the way that history textbooks remember them today. While I will not shy away from making explicit statements in certain instances, all judgments of right and wrong, good and bad, or other similar claims will be my own opinion, and it's okay if your opinion does not agree with mine. Otherwise, Everything I say on this podcast will be the facts as I was best able to find them through scholarly research, and I will include a list of all of my sources for every single episode. So, without further ado, let's dive into our topic for today. So today's topic is one that is very important to me personally, as I feel it is perhaps one of the largest moral dilemmas of the 20th century, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that brought an end to the Second World War. I find this topic to be fascinating for a number of reasons, specifically the way it was remembered in the United States. For my entire life, I had only heard the victor's perspective of, it was the only way to achieve a true, unconditional surrender from Japan. This perspective justifies the bombing by claiming that the only other way to ensure a complete and unconditional surrender from Japan 
was a mainland invasion of the island nation itself. And with this perspective comes the justification that the bombings actually saved lives. It claims that at least half a million American lives would have been lost, and even more Japanese citizens would have died in the assault. However, is that enough justification for a power to kill over 200,000 civilians? So first, let's establish the context of the situation. So it's the summer of 1945. The European theater of World War II has just concluded thanks to the defeat of Nazi Germany, and the United States is pushing closer and closer to mainland Japan with its island hopping strategy. For those of you who do not understand the concept of island hopping, by late 1942, Imperial Japan seized all of these islands in the South Pacific, and the American strategy for most of the war was to, for lack of a better term, hop its way to mainland Japan. It did this by invading one island at a time, and using it as a stepping stone to invade the next island, and so on and so forth. There was a problem with this, though, as invading each island involved launching a D-Day-style amphibious assault, except they were facing an enemy so incredibly devoted that they would fight through any conditions, oftentimes to the very last man. Now, I am by no means an expert on the Japanese culture of the time that caused this, but Dan Carlin does an excellent job discussing it in his Hardcore History podcast in the Supernova in the East series, if you're interested in learning more. So anyways, we have American troops invading these small islands in the Pacific against a Japanese army that sends troops on suicide missions, has troops who just refuse to surrender. It's an incredibly intense, brutal fighting situation. To give you an example of how the casualty numbers from these battles look, Battle of Iwo Jima resulted in 18,500 dead Japanese soldiers, and the Americans suffered 6,800 dead and 19,000 wounded. And Okinawa, the final island assault before the bombs were dropped, cost an estimated 110,000 Japanese military lives, against total American casualties of 48,000, including 12,000 dead and 36,000 wounded. To put this even more in context for you, that's 110,000 thousand Japanese soldiers killed compared to fewer than 8,000 Japanese soldiers captured. And that doesn't even get into civilians. Another 100,000 civilians on Okinawa died, often committing suicide rather than being captured. In some instances, Japanese military officers gave hand grenades to the citizens of Okinawa with orders to detonate the grenade if the U.S. military arrived. So this is the populace that the United States is up against in 1945. They are highly motivated and driven to defend their homes, to defend their country, but above all else, to defend their honor. And defending one's honor does not quite go hand in hand with surrendering to the enemy. So military tacticians are looking at these casualty figures, and it's a really, really hard thing to consider because they really have two options. First, they can invade mainland Japan the way that they have been invading the rest of the Pacific. The problem with this is obvious. The Japanese culture is so fiercely loyal and devoted to their honor that the U.S. military would have to face not just the formal Japanese military, but also militia regiments and civilians. Troops are unlikely to surrender, there will be more troops than the U.S. has ever faced before, and these troops will all of a sudden be defending their actual homeland as opposed to just another colony. Casualty estimates for such a proposed invasion vary wildly, so I won't try to give you an accurate figure. I've seen numbers ranging from half a million to a million Americans dead, and while sources are incredibly difficult to find for this, so I will not say this number with any authority, it appears that Japanese casualty estimates in the event that the United States invaded mainland Japan are anywhere from 10 to 20 million. So let's really think about this. Imagine being the person staring at these figures, 
knowing that you could be responsible for ordering an attack that may result in 11 to 21 million total deaths. How can you, in good conscience, order that? I don't think anyone with half of a heart could, in fact, order that attack. It's too astronomically big for most of us to even wrap our minds around. But going so far back as 1943, U.S. officials believed that this was the only way to win the war with Japan. However, by 1945, another option existed. So, in mid-1942, the U.S. government and U.S. Army started to work on the Manhattan Project. It was a top-secret collaboration between the U.S. government and some of the world's top physicists to create a uranium fission bomb, which, at the start of the project, was little more than some rough calculations and guesses. No one knew whether or not the bomb would even work. Everyone was just theorizing, but they did make it work. The Manhattan Project was probably an even wilder success than anyone ever expected it to be, as I doubt that anyone could imagine a single bomb that could level an entire city. But that's exactly what the bomb did. Now that we know what the alternative entailed, let's talk about what actually happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 6th, 1945, the United States Army Air Corps dropped the first bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The ensuing explosion resulted in the deaths of an estimated 150,000 Japanese citizens, mostly civilians. Three days later, another such bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki, killing 75,000 Japanese citizens. I got these numbers from UCLA, and they actually bring up that these numbers are likely overly conservative. Now, these two bombs are largely credited with ending the war without the need for an invasion like we discussed before, as Japan formally surrendered just six days after the bombing of Nagasaki on August 15, 1945. So now that we know the raw data, let's dive deeper into this. 225,000 lives lost in two bombings. The number honestly is hard for me to even say. 225,000 civilian non-combatants killed by no fault of their own, no decision of their own, simply because they happened to be unlucky enough to be unwilling participants in history as opposed to just bystanders like the rest of us. Obviously, we have an ethical dilemma on our hands. On the one hand, 225,000 lives instead of 11 million lives. When viewed in this way, the way that it was discussed in my history classes, and I'm sure that's how it was for many of you too, it's a no-brainer. It's never good to kill 225,000 people, but when you can save millions of lives by sacrificing thousands, one of those seems like the better option. However, it's not always this cut and dry ethically. The primary issue with this position is that these casualties were civilians. While I don't want this to sound like I'm elevating the lives of some people over others, there is a rule in modern warfare. You only harm combatants. Whether they are drafted or they joined of their own free will, Military forces know that every time they step onto a battlefield, they're putting their lives in risk. Civilians don't have that same luxury. They're at the mercy of the events transpiring around them. And on top of that, these 225,000 people were even more disadvantaged in this situation because the bombs were dropped without warning on their everyday lives. Children going to school, adults going to work, people running errands, all of them simply minding their own business in one instant and reduced to dust in the next. So should these 225,000 people really be the sacrifice for doing nothing more than living their lives? If not them, then who? And if civilians cannot be the ones to die, then who should be the ones to die? Or can you even select a group of people who should die to save the lives of so many others? As we can see, we've reached a major ethical dilemma, the same as the oft-discussed trolley problem. In the trolley problem, 
Five people stand on a train track with a train fast approaching. You can divert the train and save these people from imminent death by pulling a lever, but the lever will send the train hurtling into a single person. The gut reaction is five lives are worth more than one, but could you pull the lever that altered the course of history and killed someone whose life may have originally been spared? It's a question that we can't answer. Sitting here 75 years after the events originally transpired, we are entirely unable to say whether we should have dropped the bombs and killed 225,000 people, or we should have invaded Japan for ethics sake and risked the deaths of potentially millions. But are those really our only two options? After the war, the United States wanted to really dive into the details of their bombing strategies, how effective the bombings were, and how big of an impact the atomic bombs had in ending the war with Japan. So they established the United States Strategic Bombing Survey, which we will be calling the SBS from here on out. Now, the SBS was originally established by Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson in 1944, specifically to research the bombing strategies in the European theater. But President Truman expanded it to include Japan later on. One of the really interesting things about this project was that instead of having government employees or military leaders conduct the survey, the government actually had a group of civilians run it in order to stay impartial. Now, I have to give the government credit for this. I'm being honest, if I had made some of the decisions that officials from every single government made during this war, I would not want anyone impartial analyzing my decisions. Even the decisions that make sense, and even the ones that here 75 years later we can't make a decision on, I wouldn't have wanted anyone to analyze them. So to be willing to let civilians pick those decisions apart is really impressive. Anyways, the SBS was concluded and released in 1946. And there's a lot to unpack in this. I'm going to read you the line from the survey that has gone down in history, even though it was probably not in your textbooks, and then we'll talk about it. Based on a detailed investigation of all the facts and supported by the testimony of the surviving Japanese leaders involved, it is the survey's opinion that certainly prior to December 31st, 1945, and in all probability prior to November 1st, 1945, Japan would have surrendered. Even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated. This sentence is one of the weightiest sentences that I have ever read in my life. Just 72 words that changes everything that we've been talking about for this entire episode. All of a sudden, it's not the trolley problem. We aren't trying to decide whether millions of people, many of whom are military personnel who are paid to fight and risk their lives, should die, or 225,000 innocent people should die in their stead. We aren't trying to find the moral high ground in an ethical dilemma. This one sentence changes that. All of a sudden, it appears that 225,000 people died for absolutely no reason at all. Maybe the United States needed to seem like it was preparing for a mainland invasion to get Japan to surrender. And maybe we needed to continue dropping traditional bombs on Japan, which itself caused more damage than I believe most of us would be comfortable causing. But did we need to utterly ruin two cities? Did we really need to kill or permanently wound that many innocent people to end this war? And if we did need to do this, was it even worth it to achieve this unconditional surrender? Can anyone justify using this much force against civilians? I personally would say no, but my opinion means little in this scenario. I was not the one in a position to make these decisions. I was not the one seeing the numbers in real time. But the fact remains that by many UN definitions, some may view the bombings as a war crime. However, Again, this is not the whole story. There are some questions about the validity of the findings as it in and of itself states that while the atomic bombs were unnecessary, 
they did hasten Japan's surrender, as the militaristic parts of the country's cabinet were initially unwilling to submit to the terms of surrender. This is a difficult topic to dance around, as this means that under the conditions that existed prior to the atomic bomb, Japan may have been unwilling to surrender, even in the face of an indefinite continuation. People in this camp tend to point very strongly towards the necessity of the bombs and the Soviet declaration of war on Japan as the major reasons that Japan surrendered. Obviously, we cannot know whether or not it was the bombs that caused the surrender, but knowing just a little bit more of the story can really change your perception of history. So, speaking of perceptions of history, there is one last thing I want to touch on in this episode, and this is a game I'm going to play at the end of every episode. Now that we have a much broader view of this event, I want to turn towards the reason that a podcast like this is even necessary, how the subject is taught. I'm going to focus primarily on American textbooks in this episode, as this is a very controversial topic and America has the most interest in making people take its side. To give you a little background, this little segment is why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. Everyone has a worldview. Some worldviews are equivalent to each other, but some can be very damaging to both the people who hold them and the societies they interact with. However, anyone who tells you anything has an agenda that they want you to support. Even if they do it subconsciously, they want you to believe something specific, whether that's the facts of an event or an interpretation of an event. Sometimes, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just subjective. I could promote a worldview that Ernest Hemingway is the best author to ever live, and it's only damaging in that it ignores all the other incredible authors who have lived. But unfortunately, that's not where most worldviews are pushed, and it's not as obvious as that. If I say Hemingway is the best, it's obvious that I am expressing my belief. But if I tell you that the Spanish Inquisition actually helped Spain reach a worthy goal, and that without the Inquisition, Spain never would have done so much good in the world, that's a big deal. And if I tell you that when you're young, and I tell you that on a yearly basis for many years, then you're going to think that the Spanish Inquisition was justifiable. And then, if I take that pre-existing bias that I have implanted in your brain, and I tell you news stories using language and talking points that appeal to those biases, then I can make you believe anything I want without you ever knowing it's not the full story. I can ignore things, I can inflate things, I can make misleading statements, I can literally do anything I want to the news. And then, in 200 years, if my side won whatever conflict I was reporting on, my bias would be the thing taught as history. No matter how good your source, there will always be some kind of bias, which is why it's so important to go to primary sources, read and interpret statistics and numbers, critically analyze things. That's why this is so important. That's why I'm so passionate about this. That's why I wanted to do this podcast. So when I was growing up, I learned nothing other than we dropped the bombs, they saved a bunch of lives that would have been lost invading Japan, that's the end of the story. In my research, it seemed like a lot of history textbooks in the United States are still teaching something similar to that, but with a more analytical twist, citing real numbers from the island hopping campaign and making predictive calculations to justify the use of the bombs, just like the top brass did in 1945. Again, using those numbers softens the blow of 225,000 civilian casualties. But at this point, without a mountain of new evidence to support the claim that Japan wouldn't have surrendered, it feels like the victor of this conflict is justifying an incredible use of force against civilians to maintain the popular support of its populace. Without some new research contradicting the strategic bombing survey, how can we ever again view this situation as an instance of the trolley problem as opposed to just a government flexing its muscles to show its power? But just like how we can't make any justifications for the action, we can't really attack the decision either. We don't know the numbers people were looking at. We don't know what factors influenced the decision, 
and we can't say with any real degree of certainty what would have happened if the bombs had never been dropped. All we can do is reflect on a human tragedy. The deaths of nearly a quarter million people whose only crimes were where they happened to be in early August 1945. As we reflect on this tragedy, let us strive to learn from the past and apply what we learned to make a better tomorrow so that we are never again in a situation where we have to use the bomb. On that note, thank you so much for tuning into the first ever episode of the Uncensored History Podcast. If you want to stay updated about the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Jonathan D. Morey, all one word. I'll be posting updates and episode launches there. Until next time, I've been your host, Jonathan Morey. Tune in again to find out what your textbook left out in the second episode of Uncensored History.